I don't know why it is, but when you sip a Negroni, I always feel as though I'm rich. <laughs> Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? This is the Modern Bar Cart podcast, and I am your curious host, Eric Koslick. I want to thank you for joining me once again this week and allowing me to guide you through the strange, beautiful, and often bizarre landscape of cocktails and home bartending. You know how we roll. Sometimes we're hanging out in a distillery with someone who makes spirits for a living. Sometimes we're grilling a professional bartender about the ins and outs of the trade. Sometimes I'm giving you all the nerdy science and technical nuances of things like ice or citrus or homemade syrups. And sometimes, like in this episode, we're hanging out with an author, someone who's taken the time to painstakingly research all the details of some corner of the cocktail kingdom so that they can be arrayed on the page before your very eyes in a new and thought-provoking manner. This week's guest is Mark Forsyth, a.k.a. The Inky Fool, who is a prolific author, rhetorician, and etymologist. What do those last two words mean? Well, basically, Mark is concerned with words, the way we use them, and how that has evolved over the years, passing from mouth to mouth and transforming from an ancestral grunt to an entry in the Oxford English Dictionary. Mark's latest project is a book called A Short History of Drunkenness. And there's a lot to talk about when the vast sweep of human history is your topic of choice. But before we dive into this bizarre and thoroughly enlightening conversation, I want to give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is two things. Number one, it's a PSA of sorts. And number two, it's not a cocktail at all. Guys, I live in Washington, D.C., a.k.a. the Swamp. You know, the one that was supposed to be drained by now? Well, it's not, and it's hot. We've had like five straight days of 90 plus degree weather, and I'm dying here. Add to that the fact that this week marks the 4th of July holiday for us here in the US. So I thought I'd throw out a fun fact that might help you enjoy your hot weather drinking and stay safe when it's super hot outside. If you're wondering what type of beer to get, when you're planning to grill out in the sun or attend some other event in the heat of the day, consider looking for something called a session ale. Now, I wasn't aware of what this really meant when I first got into beer. I thought it was kind of a riff on the word Saison, which is like a citrusy wheat beer, but that's not the case. A session beer is something with a fairly low ABV, usually no more than 5%, and it can be as low as you know somewhere in the threes. This allows the drinker to pace her or himself and enjoy a number of them safely without getting totally wasted. If you follow craft beer, you know how trends go. Everybody usually opts for the booziest, hoppiest, bitterest, or most obscure flavors. But session beers defy that logic. Historically, they're moving in the direction of the weak beers that used to be completely pervasive straight through the 18th century when people couldn't really trust the quality of the water and needed that little bit of alcohol to ensure that the water was safe to drink. We'll talk more about that in today's episode. One bonus of a session beer 
is that you get less inebriated and less dehydrated, which are both bonuses when you're operating in extremely hot conditions or attempting to remember everyone's hot dog and hamburger orders if you're the person running the grill. If you're here in the U.S., there's a ton of great session beers available around the country. Most large microbreweries offer at least some seasonal take on this style. One pervasive option happens to be Founders All Day IPA, and I can personally vouch for both the flavor and the sessionability of that particular option. But the moral of the story here is go low ABV and please be safe this Independence Day as you brave the heat. With that, let's return to the topic at hand, drunkenness through the ages. Some of the things I discuss in this conversation with author Mark Forsyth include, and I'm not kidding, you can't make this stuff up, why Hitler is partially responsible for spam email, one important reason why you shouldn't challenge a Malaysian tree shrew to a drinking competition, why the drunken monkey hypothesis explains a lot about how and why people drink the way they do, the difference between wet and dry cultures. One old-fashioned workaround for observant Muslims to sneak in a quick drink by screaming loudly and suddenly. How to feed your dead ancestors with drunken vomit and much, much more. After that list of highlights, all I can really say is buckle up, folks. This interview is fun, weird, and fascinating, and it puts you in touch with some essential parts of the human condition that we haven't managed to escape from even thousands and thousands of years after the first proto-human got drunk on rotten fruit and told his buddies. Please enjoy this thrilling conversation with author and etymologist Mark Forsyth. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. So today we are chatting with Mark Forsyth, who is an author and etymologist, I suppose. Uh, yes, I suppose so. At least I've written a book on etymology. I did uh, my first three books were all about the English language and etymology, which is studied where words come from and the strange and weird stories behind everyday words. Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of those uh, in, in the cocktail tradition as well. But t- today we're going to be talking about one of your more recent projects, which is a book called A Short History of Drunkenness. That's right. Yes. Uh, um, how, why, when and where mankind has gotten merry from the Stone Age to the present. It's a, a subject very, very dear to my heart. Words and yeah. booze and combinations of the two. Right. So can you just start by just quickly introducing us to Mark Forsyth, telling us who you are and, and how you came to approach the, the project that you're currently doing today? So um, I'm a writer. I write about all sorts of things. I first had some success with writing books about words and the history of the English language. And it's a subject that fascinates me because English is something, I mean, as long as you're a native speaker, that you we all grew up with and we take for granted and we don't stop and think about. We don't think about so simple things as to where words come from and what the connection between two words might be. So to find the strange stories behind the very familiar, I find fascinating. And I found etymology, just this mind filled with um, very, very funny stories, really, and little moments that make you go, oh, of course, now I, now I see, now I understand. That's why those two words go together. And 
uh, that, that that's that's what it all means. So you, you know, take I mean, really simple example. If you're a fan of something, you're a fan of Madonna or Michael Jackson, or you know, where, where does the word fan come from? There, does it mean like the thing you wave when it's hot to keep you know uh, to cool you down? And of course, it's not. It's just short for the word fanatic. So fan fanatic is it's such a the, these things are often so simple the second you see them, but you you don't see them uh, because you don't stop and you don't look. And so and they're also often uh, loads of times the story are really really funny or strange and weird you know the connection between oh why uh, why you get spam email and the connection between that and the tinned meat still available in many shops and still a trademark is a very odd and strange story which I won't go into at the moment but which involves Adolf Hitler on Monty Python and the early days of the internet and all sorts of very strange stuff like that and also obviously it kind of blends into alcohol at times things like you know what is champagne and where, how does the word relate to campaign or to camping it up or to mind camp or to being a champion and in fact they're all cognates they all come from the same root by various long complicated roots and so uh, my first three books were all about the english language its history rhetoric the figures of rhetoric and uh, which again is something you look at but you don't uh, we all sort of know but we don't notice once you say home sweet home oh captain my captain burn baby burn bond james bond to be or not to be you can see that there's a pattern forming there but probably a pattern you have never noticed the greeks call that one diacopy it's it's looking at familiar things and seeing how strange they are and then making them funny and entertaining for a mass audience yeah, that's that's really funny. I'm going to look up the spam story. I'm sure it's out there, and we'll we'll link to it in the show notes if I, if I can uh, dig it up. But I can give it to you quickly if you like. Well, I I think you teased it so effectively okay. that I think okay. we'll, we'll have to hit it before we yes. move on. <laughs> Okay, the spam stories. Spam stories. Simply, you had spam, which was first p- produced by Hormel um, Food Incorporators, I recall, in America in the 1930s. It was a trademark. It's short for spiced ham. And um, during the Second World War, Hitler tried to cut off Britain from all food supplies. And so those North Atlantic convoys you probably heard about in the Second World War, which were being besieged by U-boats and fired on, and lots of people died trying to get important stuff to Britain. A lot of that important stuff was just tinned meat. An awful lot of it was just spam being sent across the Atlantic. And so spam became a massive part of the British diet during the Second World War, and specifically the British working class diet. And as a result, in the 1960s, Monty Python did a sketch in which somebody goes into a, a really rather rubbishy cafe and asks what's on the menu, and the woman behind you may well have seen the sketch. The woman says, oh, we've got roast spam, fried spam, spam with spam, spoiled spam, spam on the side with spam. And then in the background, because it's a Monty Python sketch, a bunch of Vikings sitting at a table start singing spam, 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 went on and on forever. And therefore, in Monty Python, for some reason, very popular with computer programmers, don't know why. Indeed, there's a computer programming language called Python, which is named after them. Uh, early days of the internet, there was this practical joke. People would send each other emails with a program saying, run this program. If you ran the program, the program had two commands. Command number one was print the word spam on the screen. Command number two was go back to the first command. The result was if you ever ran the program, you've just got the word spam, 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 going on and on forever down your screen. That was a spam email, and the spam emails therefore became a generic term for any email you got that you didn't really want. And that's why you get spam emails today, and it's still a registered trademark of Hormel Food. 
Wow, that is quite the story. And I think that's a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about, how kind of the projects that you immerse yourself in almost result in you walking around in a day-to-day world where we are also walking around, but, but you're seeing these little connections that most of us are oblivious to. And uh, it, must be, it must be a really rich and interesting set of topics and projects that, that you immerse yourself in. So really excited to dig into uh, your work on drunkenness. I figured that we could start at the beginning if you want to. Is that, uh, can we do that? We can, yeah, we can go right to the very, very beginning, to the primordial, primordial soup, if you like, which was alcoholic. Yes. So I had a, I had a question for you, and and I because I've you know spent some time working with cocktails and with drinking. There's something that I've come across in the past, and I'm not quite sure if it's actual science or if it's pseudoscience, but it's something called the drunken monkey hypothesis, or at least that's how I've seen it phrased. So I was wondering. Yeah, I know it well. If you might expound on whether or not this is a valid hypothesis and you know kind of explain it to our listeners it's pretty convincing i should point out before we get going that all of the higher apes and most intelligent mammals and even some very stupid mammals like a drink they will drink alcohol whenever they can get hold of it it's just they can't make it but alcohol does occur naturally if you just leave fruit to rot it starts producing alcohol and it's uh, alcohol is a very good source of energy and Uh, human beings are uniquely good at processing it. We are the second best animal in the entire world for um, taking our booze after the Malaysian tree shrew. So never ever get into a drinking contest with the Malaysian tree shrew. But after that, we have a quite specific mutation in our genes, uh, which uh, goes back about 10 million years, which allows us to process alcohol way better than most animals and to get more energy out of it. About 10% of all the enzymes in your liver are there just to get energy out of alcohol. And this led people to say, why do we have that? Interestingly, 10 million years ago is just about the time we came down from the trees. And so the theory runs something along the lines of we came down from the trees to get this ripe, rotting fruit, which has fallen onto the forest floor. That's why we come down from the trees, which has this alcohol in it, which is great for our energy. We actually develop a nose. We, we, we're like great white, you know, great white sharks can smell blood, you know, miles and miles away. We are like that with alcohol. Humans have this incredible ability to smell alcohol, which other animals don't have. So we wandered around looking for our rotting fruit. When we found it, we ate a bit, but it was it was a big find to find a, a, a proper alcoholic rotting fruit. And so we then needed another little mutation in our genes, which we have, which dates from the same time, which is to make us eat a lot. And I don't know if you've had that thing of going on a night out, having quite a bit to drink, and then desperately needing a burger, or in Britain it's usually a kebab or a pizza or some, some food. That's because right. drink, drinking alcohol actually uh, triggers it's the famine response in your brain. It makes you hungry. It's the same as if you're actually being starved. You go, when you say I'm starving when you're drunk, you actually sort of are. And so you therefore eat loads and loads. This, um, you can now store it as fat. You can survive for days on this. This is great. But, and this is the final part of the drunken monkey hypothesis, you get drunk. And this is a little bit dangerous. If you're just lying around on the forest floor on your own, drunk, and along comes a saber-toothed tiger or Tyrannosaurus rex, which would be a chronological, but there we are, then you need to be able to protect yourself from that predator. And that, the final part of the drunken monkey hypothesis, is that that's why humans drink socially. 
we drink together and we've always according to drunken monkey hypothesis drunk together so that we can fight off predators so that we can protect each other when we are helplessly drunk which i rather like wow it's so interesting that using the theory of evolution right which is largely influenced by outside pressures right the kind of concept of natural selection these outside forces that are coming in and dictating who survives and who does not survive to pass on yeah. their genes it's fascinating that something like this can have such a widespread impact on something that appears to be so far downstream from your genes like the fact that you like to drink with other people yeah it's amazing but it is a classic form of natural selection that the people who got drunk on their own would end up being the prey of whatever nasty predator was around because if you're passed out unconscious on the forest floor drunk on your own you're in trouble so aggressively selected for according to the drunken monkey hypothesis which i find very convincing and i, I should point out that despite its comical name it's a, a theory that's taken very seriously amongst evolutionary scientists right right one other factoid that i will throw into the conversation and i'm not quite sure how you know how, how well supported this happens to be but when it comes to our predispositions to like certain tastes, for example. Obviously, you know, you said that it was quite a find to find this, you know, rotting fruit on the ground because it was high in sugar and then also alcohol. So we get the energy from both the sugar and the alcohol still there. And then, of course, the buzz from the alcohol. But when things tend to rot, they, there's, there's an, very many times an acid or kind of a sour taste to them. And of the tastes between sweet, salty, and sour are the ones that we tend to prefer most. And then, you know, bitterness is something that we are actually predisposed to kind of avoid because of its, I guess, its association with certain things that are poisonous or, or bad for the human body. And, and so, also in terms of the, the acid taste, alcohol, which has gone over. Remember, if you if you just leave wine long enough, it turns into vinegar, which I, I mean, I kind of like vinegar, but, <laughs> but not, not the halfway house between wine and vinegar. So, yeah, they, that's warning you off in that sense, or it would appear to be doing so, yeah. Right, right. So it's just interesting that, you know, you look at so many of the cocktails that are popular today, and they do have, you know, in many cases, that fresh fruit juice or the use of, in some of the, the more high-end concept bars, they're actually using citric acid, which is dried lemon juice. And it's, it's just, it blows my mind that if you go back far enough and you think about your distant ancestors, that this could possibly be related to who got killed by a tiger and who drank with their friends. Yes, yeah, an amazing thought that it can go that back, back that far. And I mean, in some sense, it goes back even further. There's a, a lovely detail I found out while researching the book is uh, fruit flies, because they eat fruit. They, they, they take in a, a lot of alcohol. When a male fruit fly is rejected by a female fruit fly in their very basic sexual advances, the male fruit fly dramatically ups his alcohol consumption immediately afterwards. Now, nobody knows why that is, because we don't know whether fruit flies think or have emotions or are conscious or anything like that. But it, it, it just didn't make me sort of yearn to believe that the fruit fly is drinking to forget. Yeah, he's a little bit lonely yeah. when his lady leaves. Even though um, that one probably isn't true to some extent. <laughs> Sure, sure. Well, what about when, you know, 
after we came down from the trees, we started forming more organized societies and things like language developed and social hierarchies. Uh, is there anything about the way that we consumed alcohol as humans that started to change or evolve or, or become more clear when societies formed? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, another argument, which is very convincing, is that society actually, or uh, farming started, uh, hunter-gathering stopped and farming started to obtain alcohol. We settled down to farm so that we could make our own beer. And this is actually, this is another one which sounds crazy until you stop and think about it, which is that if you are hunting and gathering, eating other animals, then you get a lot of vitamin B out of other animals, which you need to not die. Whereas if you just stop and you start farming and making bread, bread has no vitamin B in it. So if you tried to do that, you just start with the bread, you would you would definitely die. Fortunately, though, beer, which is also made out of uh, grain, wheat, barley, etc., beer contains vitamin B. So if we settled down to farms and uh, agricultural economy, we must have started with beer, or at least beer and bread right next to each other. And beer makes sense to start with, because if you actually if you have a pile of barley and you want to get the most energy out of it, the best thing you can do is turn it into beer in terms of the calorie count, rather than into bread. So, yeah, civilization farming started with with beer. That That's a very widely accepted thought and then and then things uh, i mean it's connected to everything we do because we've always been drinkers when writing started writing started just as a usually as a form of ious an accounting system that you noted down you've given me five bushels of grain draw a bushel of grain and return iou seven women draw seven women one of the earliest letters therefore in these uh, pictogram alphabets was the symbol for beer so that's right there from the beginning and then the these primitive societies form with again with uh, their gods and goddesses and always there's a goddess of beer and a goddess of drunkenness and a, usually female in the early days ninkazi and hathor in ancient egypt who was the crazy beer goddess who went between being the goddess of love the goddess of destruction but always the drunk goddess got it it's um it's interesting that you bring up agriculture in that way and you know kind of agriculture for the sake of brewing and uh, i was i was reading recently a book that's pretty famous at least here in the u.s it's called sapiens by a, a gentleman named duval noah harari and... i've got that on my pile of books to read actually it's it's, it's there about number 10 it's 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 very good, and one of the points that he makes, I won't spoil. Uh, it's actually a rather hard book to spoil for someone because it, it covers so much. But one of the points that he makes is that when when people decided to begin farming, when uh, agriculture kind of evolved as a widespread practice, we kicked off something that we were completely incapable uh, as humans of stopping, you know, uh, and one of his hypotheses is that we were actually, when we were running around as hunter-gatherers in the forest and coming across these caches of, of fermenting fruit, that that was actually perhaps a time in history when we had the most free time, the best diets, and, you know, there's a lot of arguments that can be made against that uh, or in favor of other types of lifestyles, but it's interesting that that this agriculture, this pursuit of drunkenness may have kicked off so many more things in history than we otherwise would suspect. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, an awful lot of early world trade is getting booze from one place to another. Ancient Egypt made contact with uh, the the Levant, but they the Eastern Mediterranean, but they didn't like each other very much. Ancient Egypt basically maintained trade to get the wine from the Eastern Mediterranean because Egypt was a beer-producing country. They all the best wines out in the east and so yeah it's 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 driven so much i've got to say though just as a little parenthetical thing whenever i hear the theory that we would all be happier if we were running around in the woods eating fruit and getting killed by saber-toothed tigers i don't believe it unless the author has actually given it all up up to go and run around in the woods right yeah Yeah. he was pretty good about about hedging his bets but yeah it's it's just i think the point that it reinforces is that you know as we go forward in history and we see a lot of systems that are created to, I suppose, uh, keep a very small number of people wealthy and happy and fat and the large majority of the rest of the people, you know, in uh, poverty, then, you know, that wouldn't have been the case if we hadn't, you know, set down stakes and, and created an agricultural society. But we can't really go and change that now. So uh, it's all speculation here. Um, I wanted to I wanted to talk about maybe some of the more religious drinking because you you were you were starting to speak about some of these gods and goddesses of alcohol and revelry and that's an area where I don't really know a whole lot. I know about Bacchus, who is the uh, the, the Greek god or Greco Roman god of drinking and drunkenness, drunkenness, but I don't really know much else about you know, how these gods were worshipped and what people did to get drunk using this god as an excuse. Well, I, I, it's, it is amazing because it's one of the things, the, the reason I wanted to write this book in the first place and, and really uh, look at things was alcohol is something that's so familiar. I've been doing it almost every day for the last 20 years, etc. But we, we, we just assume that these are the contexts in which you drink and these aren't and these are the rules by which you drink and these aren't. Of course, they've changed and loads and loads of cultures have had religious drinking. You, you drink, you get drunk in order to sell celebrate God or to have a religious experience. In ancient China, you drank in order to communicate with the spirits of your ancestors. You drank, and uh, real real binge drinking, but you drank until you saw your ancestor in, in front of you. And I mean, I've got pretty drunk in my life, but if I ever saw my, you know, my dear departed grandmother, I would, I would stop. Uh, but there, <laughs> there, 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 and there are loads of cultures like this. It sort of goes all the way from the South Pacific across uh, China. It's been in Europe and in South America. There's a there's one tribe in Ecuador who believe that the only way to feed the spirits of the ancestors is by getting so drunk that you vomit onto the ground, and it's only drunken holy vomit on, on the ground which can can feed them. So an example of this, a good example would be ancient Egypt, and it's a, a strange story. The goddess Hathor who uh, she was occasionally frightening goddess who had been in the process of killing all mankind when another god gave her beer and she went, oh, this is great, stopped killing mankind and had a nice nap. So <laughs> the Egyptian festival of drunkenness, for example, yearly festival takes place at the temple of the goddess Hathor and it's attended by the elite largely. This isn't for peasants, this is the elite noblemen royalty. 
to celebrate the return of Hathor from her exile in the south. So a, a boat comes up the Nile with, it appears, a statue of Hathor on it. Everyone gathers round on the banks of the Nile. It's at sunset. Everyone's wearing their finest clothing and they're wearing perfume and, and beautiful scented oils. So everything smells lovely. And they take, the priests take the statue from the boat and they were surrounded by dancers and they lead it into the temple courtyard and everyone dancing and follows and then in the temple courtyard they all set about drinking and really binge drinking and the ancient Egyptians drank like crazy they were absolute just booze hands and they they, they really went for it in a, in a binge way men and women I should point out this is about 50% men 50% women ancient Egyptian women drank just as much if not more than the men and so you drank and drank and drank and drank until you vomited and then you drank more and you drank and drank and drank till you vomited again and then you repeat 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 and you have to keep going and keep going and keep going and it must have been awful really but at the yeah. end at, towards the end of this in the, the small hours you get to the point where it go from the drinking to uh, an orgy and everyone just slept with their form which must have been awful given on all the vomit right but but they did people indeed were conceived with perfect strangers in at this festival in the temple um but it, it was a rather proud thing to be conceived you could put up people put up monuments to themselves saying i was conceived in the temple at the festival of drunkenness and then at the end of the night, as it's getting on for dawn, you do what everybody does after a lot of drinking, vomiting and having sex, which is you just fell asleep where you were. And the temple uh, courtyard would be filled with snoring, snoring revelers. And whilst they were asleep, the priests who had remained sober throughout would go into the side chapel where the giant statue of Hathor was kept. And while everyone was asleep, they would wheel it out or somehow transported out into the centre of the courtyard. And then they wait till dawn, when the light of the dawn sun would hit the face of the giant statue. And at that moment, they would pull out lots of tambourines and cymbals and drums and flutes and start making a massively loud noise to wake everybody up. And everybody would... I don't know if you've ever woken up still horribly drunk, but it's a terrible disorientating feeling as you wake up and you well, and you would look up and you'll see this giant statue which hadn't been there when you went to sleep come lit up by the rays of the dawn sun and it was Hathor and at that moment you had an experience of the goddess you were at one with the goddess and anything you asked the goddess at that moment she would grant you but you, wow. but you probably couldn't remember what to ask her because you were drunk. But yeah, that's that's religious drinking or one form of it. Wow. So a couple things that, that really interested me about what you just said, that, that whole story and how it was choreographed is, one, alcohol as a vehicle for magic or a mystical experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's something that we can trace all the way through history. And then... I had, I had a question that I wanted to ask before we, we, we move on with that or pursue that line, which is, you know, you said that the ancient Egyptians were just absolute drunks and they were, they were, they were hitting it hard. And that's something that I've heard many times cocktail or alcohol historians would say about early Americans. And so I'm wondering if, indeed, as history has gone forward to the present point, we've become more and more moderate as people, or if it's a sort of a common misconception that our forefathers were drunker than we are. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, but unfortunately, I don't think there's a single answer to it. It varies around... The, the question of moderation is often a question of, are you drinking all at once in one little binge, or are you drinking gradually over the day? Anthropologists call this a wet culture, which is a happy drinking culture where you have a little something in the morning, a little something with lunch, a little something. It's the Mediterranean drinking culture, we also call it. Right. And the opposite of that is uh, what's uh, often referred to as a dry culture, which doesn't mean no drinking. What that means is that you do all your drinking in a short burst at some given moment. So Britain is usually defined as a dry drinking culture insofar as we do it in a short burst on a Friday night and you, you drink everything you can. The Egyptians seem to have drunk in heavy bursts and it's a large amount, as I say, drink till you vomit you know, really hit it until until it hurts. That doesn't mean that overall their alcohol consumption might be that different from, and there's another slightly misleading thing a lot of people would have heard, which is that it's completely true that if you were a medieval monk, you would have a ration of beer per day, usually gallon, which is eight pints of beer, which is actually not that much if you're drinking all day. I've, I've tried this myself. So if you get eight cans, eight large cans of beer, have one with breakfast, then one about two hours later, two hours later, it's, it's every two hours. And you're not completely sober and you probably shouldn't drive, but you're never drunk. It's just right. something spread out over the day. So the fact that medieval monks had a ration of a gallon of beer a day, which makes it see us sort of think they're all just, um, you know, dancing around utterly sloshed all the time is 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 wrong they they that, that i mean they could get sloshed obviously but they, largely it's about how you do it and do you do it in strong bursts or do you do it in uh, slow gradual bits and um the egyptians were strong burst drinkers it was it was hardcore right right interesting so you mentioned monks we're we were, we're we've been talking about gods and goddesses we've we've just mentioned monks and it seems that the religious orders that are in control or you know dominant in a, a given time actually in most cases have some sort of ties to alcohol i grew up in the catholic church when i was young and uh, my first encounter with alcohol was the communion wine even though it was a very weak watered down wine it was still you know my first uh, experience with it and now it's a big thing that all over the world is a strange little point because as the Catholic religion or Christianity, generally speaking, spread out over the world, you have to have, wherever you go and trying to convert people, including the New World, etc., you have to have wine. So those conquistadors who arrived with the priests in, 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 in the Americas, they had on board, they had vines, because you absolutely had to have a source of wine wherever you went to convert people, which made oh, converting really? Iceland really quite hard, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um <laughs> And it also just so happens that some of my favorite things to drink or my favorite cocktail ingredients are also the products of Christian orders. So a couple notable examples would be green chartreuse, yellow chartreuse made by the yeah. Carthusian monks, and then Benedictine made by the Benedictine monks. So I'm wondering if there's any other important insights to be gotten from you know, the way that alcohol and religion continued as we can't kind of got out of the gods and goddess era and into the more monotheistic religions. If you're talking about 
Christianity then an important thing to remember about the whole history of drinking is that there, for most of history there wasn't much coffee and there wasn't much tea all these things arrive late to the table and there wasn't much milk milk couldn't be refrigerated or stored so it got turned into cheese fruit juice hard to come by and hard to keep so the, the only and uh, water just straight water out of the nearest stream or river or just think of the nearest stream or river to wherever it is you happen to be and would you drink that water no or make you ill so alcohol was just in uh, in much of the world was the way to drink without getting horribly ill um, and therefore not really frowned on i mean when when you know, the reason they landed at plymouth rock for example to form your great nation was um simply that they, they weren't meant to land there, but they, they'd run out of beer. And that's why they stopped. And they stopped there to, uh, because we need to plant some stuff, we need to make beer, we can't keep sailing without beer. And these were Puritans, remember. Puritans, but they just, obviously, you, you had to have beer. You had to have beer to live. And weirdly enough, even in America, which was largely virgin territory at that time, and the, the river water really was pretty clean, they still didn't drink it because, you know, you don't drink river water. So even a Puritan was pretty fine with things. If you're getting onto the uh, uh, other monotheistic religions, obviously Islam has a very tricky relationship with alcohol. It should be pointed out, though, that the fact that the Quran finally does ban alcohol in the Hadith, which is the sort of the, the list of the sayings of the prophets which aren't uh, in, in the Quran, uh, is really, really against alcohol. That really didn't stop the Muslim world for drinking for most of history. I mean, Iran is where an awful lot of the earliest wine ever found was made. It was a uh, a massive wine-producing place, which um, Arabia hadn't been. So where, where where Islam started in Mecca and Medina, they, they'd never been big drinkers there. But you get into Iran, Iraq, everyone just kept drinking. What happened was it turned it into the classic example of what I was talking about earlier, a dry culture, a place where you binge drink quickly and secretly rather than publicly and relaxedly drinking all day. So there's this kind of, it, roughly in the way I think that people take cocaine at a lot of parties today, you know, they run off to a back room, don't let anyone see and then come back. And of course, everybody knows what <laughs> what's just happened. And also it means that there isn't much of a question of, of the taste of it. It's a question of how much you can neck and how quickly. There's a lovely little um, description I found of from, I think, Syria in about 15th century, where a traveller describes how they would they would get their, their drinks and then just before drinking, they would scream as loud as they could and then down the drink, down the wine, usually. And the reason for this was that screaming was meant to dislodge the soul from the body, briefly. And so if you went, ah! for a moment, your soul would be outside of your body, at which point you could neck the booze without there being any sin involved. And either way, oh my. I know it's beautiful. Either way, in, uh, importantly, in, in Islam, you can ask for forgiveness just as you can in Christianity. And, and uh, Allah is very merciful. What you can't do is ask for forgiveness whilst you're still planning to repeat it. So oddly enough, though there was a lot of drinking going on in the, amongst the Muslims, it had to be made by non-Muslims. But most of it, we go back to the days of the Caliphate, every city had the, you know, the Muslim majority, but then there'd be the Greek quarter, the Armenian quarter, the Jewish quarter. So they were all producing lots of booze. At two, and and uh, anyone from the Muslim quarter or the Muslim majority could wander over to that bit of town when they were feeling sinful 
and drink it and then repent the next day and that's all fine. That's a really interesting type of symbiotic relationship where these other cultures needed to kind of be there to fit the vice needs of the Muslims. Yeah. yeah. And it's also what you what you were saying about, a, a, you know, the Muslims being a dry society and, and having there be a very strict rule against alcohol. This also puts us in the realm of certain other historical events, like most notably here in the United States, prohibition, where alcohol was was actually banned uh, except for medicinal purposes. And we have the rise of something called the speakeasy where people go behind closed doors. There's a password, it's very secretive. It's a, you know this, this, uh, this short burst drinking like you were mentioning. So is there anything that you came across when studying some of the more modern things like prohibition that, that's, that's interesting about the way that we drink? Uh, well, I mean, a classic lead through from the one to the other would be in uh, Iran, where alcohol is currently illegal, where um, the average Iranian though drinks more than the average British person, as I recall. And Iran just had to open up its first alcoholics treatment center because, yes, they it's a big binge drinking culture. In America, you had, well, prohibition is a complicated beast because it was meant to do in the saloon and the the awful men's place of the saloon where men went and got drunk and spent all the money which they should have been giving to their wives and children and family but instead they got drunk and then came home angry and beat up their wives and their children and family and the main um, driver of prohibition which was actually a feminist cause in the, uh, yeah, yes, a completely feminist cause was to get rid of that whole culture, which it actually did. Prohibition was largely successful in a way which um, history doesn't get around. It had all sorts of strange outcomes. Obviously, you uh, you do have the uh, a little bit of binge drinking, but you also have what well, I mean. The cocktail becomes massive in during prohibition just because the alcohol though it's you you've probably heard of bathtub gin gin being made by some gangster in a bathtub in a basement in new york or something that gin was awful it was absolutely terrible so you couldn't just drink it straight and nor nor any form of the you know made up synthetic scotch etc so you had to drink it with an awful lot of mixes and juices which would make things taste all right and that's why the cocktail massively which had always been around for pretty much this reason there how do we make really bad alcohol drinkable becomes a massive massive thing during prohibition it's also by the way the reason just to be a bit rude to america because it up until i became an up until about 20 years ago american beer still had the most terrible reputation mm -hmm. uh, there's that wonderful simpsons episode where the germans are buying the nuclear power plant i don't know if they remember that and they say ah oh, you'll be it tastes how do you say it? like swill to us yeah but this is because uh, prohibition did actually destroy the legitimate american distilling and brewing industry for for 13 years there was no legal alcohol production going on there was a lot of alcohol production going on in in bathtubs etc but uh it's a specialized trade and everyone who'd been involved in it had to retire and go who was legitimate had to retire and go off and either way in the, the big breweries which had all the specialized equipment and it's a highly technical thing they they all had to that uh, equipment was broken down and sold off for scrap and there was 
there is this big gap in legitimate alcohol production, which had a hangover that lasted for another 50, 60 years before American alcohol got back to the level of its, uh, of its counterparts. And that's, I mean, right. it's an interesting thing. Whenever you see one of those adverts for, we've been making this rye whiskey the same way for 150 years, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Right. Because, <laughs> yeah, because that was at least 13 years you weren't. <laughs> right, right, right. I like the point that you make about prohibition being a time when the cocktail really, you know, got into the swing of uh, its, its most popular and... One distinction that I'll make there is that cocktails obviously had been around since the 1860s, 1870s, in a, in, a, in a manner of speaking. And the interesting thing about those early cocktails is that they tended to be much simpler. The Manhattan was event, in, invented in the 1870s, I believe. Manhattan being a very simple cocktail, you're just putting a fortified wine in with a whiskey and a couple dashes of bitters, which at that time were just, you know, essentially that one bottle in the medicine cabinet. So very simple cocktails. And then in Prohibition, when there are these, you know, the spirits are not necessarily bad because they are rustic and it's the best that can be produced by uh, the guy, the farmer down the road. They're bad in many cases because they're actually being watered down or cut with bad things to be made to go farther or to to appear to be of a higher quality. So it's not a... It's not an absence of, uh, of, of good quality. It's the actual addition of other bad stuff in many situations to the alcohol that required more robust things like citrus and like these bizarre liqueurs and stuff to be brought into the cocktail scene. And so that's why when we see, that's why there's a, a large uh, distinction between pre-prohibition cocktails, which tend to be simpler, and then uh, prohibition era cocktails when we started to get into some of those uh, more interesting and esoteric mixers, I guess. Also, cocktails, oddly enough, uh, a lot of the early references to cocktails are, which are largely an American invention, as you quite right say, they are uh, there to um, drinking at breakfast, drinking spirits at breakfast, quite specifically. Because one of the big things we would find odd about drinking in almost any other time than the 20th, 21st century is people drinking in the morning, drinking the breakfast. And then an extra thing we would find odd about the Midwest and the, uh, this in America, you have this huge land, this huge land with transport problems. Uh, if you want to carry a barrel of beer, which is a big, heavy thing, then it, ta it takes an awful lot of time, money, expense to transport it some distance, and then you drink it quite quickly. So it was an awful lot more efficient to transfer a bottle of whiskey, which is why whiskey becomes, unless you are in a town right next to a brewery, whiskey becomes the drink of the whole West, and it's a very spread out society just geographically. Therefore, your breakfast drink is going to be whiskey, probably, our rum maybe, and a lot right. of people couldn't really take that at breakfast, so you put it with fruit juice, and that's that's the, the where the, the the cocktail sort of begins as just a way of making spirits palatable before you know before nine a.m. Right, right. I was reading uh, your book description on Amazon, and it makes some mention to uh, the Wild West Saloon. It, it's a bit of a teaser. And so I was wondering, since we're in that kind of area of history right now, if, if you had any anything you wanted to share about what you've discovered about the Wild West drinking culture in, in the United States. Well, I love doing that chapter because in a short history of drunkenness, like I say, I was trying to find ways in which drinking was 
different in, in ways that we wouldn't expect because you assume it's always the same. So I love finding out, for example, that, you know, the medieval tavern, you know, the time of Robin Hood didn't exist at all. There, there was no such thing as the village pub at that, that time in, in England. And the Wild West Saloon is something we all think we know so so well because we've seen it so many times, you know, the Batwing Doors as you go in. The Batwing Doors did not exist at all. The uh, You go in, the bar's facing you. It wouldn't be. The bar would, was running down the left-hand side almost always. It was considered very unlucky to be on the right. Behind the bar, there's a mirror... And on behind you, the drink is sitting, looking in the mirror, there is a long painting of a nearly nude woman. And there are all these, all these little things about it, little rules, everyone's carrying guns. You have to buy a drink for, when you arrive in the bar, you have to buy a drink for the person next to you. That's, that's the absolute rule. You, you must never not do that. They have to accept. And then the, the, the round system will go on. One thing I absolutely love discovering was, you, you know, the moment in any sort of Clint Eastwood, Wild West, Western film, where he goes into the saloon and he says, whiskey or something, and they pass him a drink and he just chucks a coin on the bar. And he never says, right. how much was that? And he never gets right. any change. And you think, well, really? Really? <laughs> and, you know, you, you think it, it, it's just the drama. Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, would seem that cool if he was spending his time saying, ooh, oh, well, four ninety nine. dollars I've got, do you have change for ten or whatever? Right, right. <laughs> but in fact, that was exactly the way it worked. Each town would contain, well, usually at least two um, saloons. One was the two-bit place, and the other was the four-bit place. In the two-bit joint... Every single drink cost two bits. In the four bits joint, every single drink cost four bits. It didn't matter what you would order, you would get four bits worth. A bit being a, uh, a weird form, uh, it's a twelfth dollar or something very... <laughs> right. A, a, a silly man for dollar. And so that that's absolutely how things would have gone. You would never have asked the price, you would have never asked for and never got any change. You would always have known how much you were spending. So that little aspect, that detail is utterly true. Right, right. Interesting. I One of the things that I like, and this is actually what, what you just said made me think of a bit uh, done by an American comedian named Louis C.K., who actually does comment on how just, just how funny it, that idea is to just walk into a saloon and, and ping down a coin and say, you know, I'll have, a, you know, I'll have a whiskey and a room for the week and a woman and water for my horse and everything. He just puts down one coin and it's just sort of this, uh, it, it seems so bizarre to us today, but it, well, you wouldn't get it, all for one coin. You get that. You just get the one drink for the one coin. Right, right. But he was saying that in response to having visited England or the UK where they still use coins as currency, uh, which is something that we have largely disposed of here in the US. Uh, and all of this makes me think of my half a year in the UK when I studied abroad in Bath down in the south, and they had a city beer called Bell Ringer Ale. And the nice thing about that was that at every pub in the city of Bath, it was the same price. So there was that oh, standardization. Okay. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that standardization. That was a really nice feature to me as a drinker because I was on a budget. I was the only one of my friends who had chosen to study abroad in a country where my money was at that point worth less than it is here in the United States. So I was on a budget and it was great to know that any pub that I walked into would still, I think it was, I think it was three pounds, 50 quid for a, a nice pint of Bellringer. 
All right, perfect. Yes, I, yeah. it's, it's, it's good to know these things in advance. Definitely. Um, the only thing that occasionally happened was people getting into an argument about, oh, I thought this was a two-bit place. It, and uh, no, this is a four-bit when it looks like a two-bit place. And of course, the uh, phrase, yes. this two-bit town still survives, meaning a place that, yeah, the cheap version of a town. Right. Well, this has been really, really interesting. I know we've bounced around a lot, and I imagine that your book takes a more sort of logical approach than we have. So I was hoping that you could, before we jump into the lightning round, I was hoping you could just plug the book for our listeners, tell them where they can get their hands on it, and maybe just explain how you go about telling this story of drunkenness through the ages. So what I wanted to do was see how, how in short history of drunkenness, was to see how drunkenness had changed, how alcohol had been different, what the rules were, where if you were uh, a thousand years ago in, in uh, a Viking meat hall, or where did you go to get drunk, who did you get drunk with, what time of day did you do it, what did it mean to you, and what, what were the details of an evening or indeed a morning's drinking like. So what I did was I dropped in at different times, different points, um, the medieval alehouse or the, the Viking Mead Hall or indeed uh, the, getting drunk with Stalin or uh, the Dark Ages, the ancient Middle East, etc. or the, the gin craze in 18th century London and tried to describe in detail how a drinking session would have gone down who would have been there? What would you have talked about? Uh, how would the evening have ended up? What would you would you have sung songs? Would you have told jokes? If so, what would those jokes have been like? What sort of chairs were you sitting on? Every detail of an evening's night, uh, a night out in whatever time place it was, in a short history of drunkenness. And um, I went through. I can't remember how many. So eighteen chapters of uh, different times and places and how how getting drunk went down and how it worked in those times. Really, that's that's fantastic. I love when perspective taking happens in a nonfiction piece uh, where you're able to, you know, really dive in using the research and put yourself in the place of someone in another time, in another place. I think it's something that we're particularly bad at today, at least here in America. We, we don't tend to do a lot of perspective taking. We tend to do a lot of arguing and, uh, and belittling of, of people we don't agree with based on a color or political creed or something like that. And so that's why I find such value in it. And because it obviously pertains to alcohol, you know, that it, it, you've got, you have, at the very least, you have my attention. And one question I did want to ask was if there are any popular either books or more specifically movies or television shows that do a really good job of portraying what a drinking culture was like, or if kind of unilaterally they, they kind of do a bad job in Hollywood. Generally speaking, I, I I find bad jobs in Hollywood. I, I think there are there are some wonderful ones. There's a, a writer called Patrick McGovern, who's an American professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who writes brilliantly about ancient alcohols, ancient beers. He's got a new book out called Ancient Brews, but he also did Uncorking the Past. He's the top archaeologist in the world on on digging up ancient amphorae and scraping out the residues and working out exactly what was in there. And then he loves to do uh, joint ventures with breweries, microbreweries, making a, for example, I I drank with him, I drank a bottle of Midas Touch right. beer, which is exactly or as close as damn it to the beer that was, the remains of the beer that was found in the tomb of King Midas, so uh, 3,000 years ago or maybe. 
So uh, he's wonderful. Um, Henry Jeffrey's Empire of Booze is a great one, which is how the British Empire spread all sorts of alcohol around across the world in different ways, shapes and forms. Stephen Ingately, Drink a Cultural History. There are loads of these and they're, they're wonderful. But what I very much want to do was to specialise not on the alcohol, but on what happens when we drink the alcohol, what effect it has on us, how how we sort that out, and how we find a place for drunkenness within society, because every society has to has to find this little gap where alcohol and drunkenness can exist. Right. Do you find that it's largely a positive thing or a negative thing? If you had to balance out good and evil, uh, which way do you think the scale would swing for alcohol and drunkenness? I'm basically in favour of alcohol, but to slightly twist your question and not answer it, the thing about all human societies, all human societies have had a drug, some drug. Humans, basically, or most humans, can't take very much reality. We need something to take the edge off it. There have been very few cultures where alcohol had a secondary place, but the, uh, the Aztecs, for example, they were into more into hallucinogens than they were into alcohol. Alcohol just outcompetes the other drugs, really. It's, it's just more fun, it's better, it's healthier. And it's one of those things about um, when people talk about occasionally the war on drugs and stamping drugs out, there isn't a war on drugs, there's a war between drugs, and alcohol is a drug, caffeine is a drug, nicotine is a drug. People need a drug of some sort. And if you just, if, I mean, if you wanted to get rid of uh, cocaine or heroin or whatever it is, just take the tax off alcohol and make it universally available. Nobody will go for the other one, but we need something. We need something. Alcohol seems to me the best for that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really succinct way to put it. And uh, I don't think you dodged the question at all. I think I think that's spot on. So where can, where can people, before we jump in, where can people pick up uh, a short history of drunkenness? A Short History of Drunkenness is available in all good bookshops and some evil ones. You can get it on the internet off Amazon and all uh, other retailers. It's published by um, Penguin and it's, it's uh, sorry, it's, it's published by Three Rivers Press, which is in print. It's a, a, a lovely, beautiful book. So bookshops, Amazon, uh, Kindle, obviously. And I believe there, no, the audiobook isn't out yet. Is this a self-read audiobook? Uh, no, it's not. No, I never do that. I, I always think it's be best to leave it to actors. Okay. Although it always depresses me slightly. The actors are always better at being me than I am. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fair fair assessment, but but also a, a good observation. Uh, yeah. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes, absolutely. Now I've advertised a short history of drunkenness by Mark Forsyth. Yes. Yes. Go for it. Yes. What is your favorite cocktail or adult beverage? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what is something that you've perhaps more recently uh, been getting into? I like Negronis an awful lot. And the reason I like Negronis is for, I don't know why it is, but when you sip a Negroni, I always feel as though I'm rich. <laughs> I don't know what it's. It it, it feels uh, just impossible, inconceivable that I'm not rich, that I'm not sitting on my yacht in the sun sipping the Negroni. There's something about the taste. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it always just makes me. Yes, makes me feel I'm king of the world. Okay. Yeah. And isn't that what we all want to feel? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great. I, I love a Negroni myself. You are in the land of gin. Do you have a particular go-to gin when you make your Negroni? No, I don't. I think I usually go for Bombay Sapphire. Although I do like a pink gin, which is uh, just gin and Angostura bitters. Um, but it's, uh, 
there's got to be a Portsmouth Jenner, but it's uh, that's that's a lovely little drink. Yes, yes. Okay, if you were an alcohol-related tool, ingredient, or product, and this can be contemporary or historical, since you know so much about some <laughs> historical uh, items, uh, what would you be and why? Oh, it's, uh, would there be? A, I, I didn't think of the historical ones, like a Viking beer strainer or something. I, I, I don't know. I'd probably be a lemon zester, but I, w- I would like, I think, I'd, I'd, I'd like to just be an ice block. Okay. An ice block would be good, yes. Yeah, just be there all cold and calm and quiet and then slowly dissolve. Yeah. And especially considering, you know, what, what a huge role ice played in the creation of the cocktail and as, as the, you know, as refrigeration and, and freezing and the, the culture moved from the traditional ice house to something that's a bit more industrial, you know, that, that really uh, yeah. allowed cocktails to come about. So an ice block, that's fantastic. What is a, a Viking beer strainer? Most, uh, an awful lot of old beers were far more like, far more porridgey than we think of beer today. We think of beer as being all clean and crisp. So rather like a tea strainer, just a little funnel that you, uh, a mesh that you pour the beer through to get rid of all the little bits. All right. In ancient Sumeria, sort of 5,000 years ago, they, they drank their beer through a straw. Everyone would gather around a single pot of beer with a, a straw. And that way you all the, the sediment floated to the surface, but the straw meant you could get underneath. Right, right. Interesting. They're almost like a... The way that yerba mate is is drunk from the little the little cup where you uh, you stick the straw with the strainer into the cup and then you pass it around. Yeah, interesting. If you could have a drink with anyone in the world, past or present, who would you be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Um, just kind of paint a picture for us. It seems like you're good at that. Um. I kind of, I mean, it's a cheap way of answering the question in a sense, but um, why why not go for one of the most famous or mysterious people, you know, obviously being a writer like Shakespeare, but then Jesus, Jesus, big drinker. He sat down with the publicans and sinners and peoples. He created, you know, the wedding at Cana. He creates between 60 and 90 gallons of wine. And that must be the best wine in all history. Right. If you if you if you're going to believe in such things, it's got to be. This is Jesus. This is Messiah quality wine. It has to be pretty damn amazing. And um, he he sounds like fun. And it would be at least intriguing. You'd be able to come back and say, "Yep, yep, I'm convinced," or vice versa. So I, I, I I'd have a go at that. Otherwise, I'd like to 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 settle down with Chaucer. I think for a nice bit of uh, medieval ale and see how he was and. Yeah, what sort of guy he was. Yeah, Chaucer, author of the Canterbury Tales, and uh, a lot, That's the one, yeah. a lot of those characters were uh, fairly, fairly drunk. Oh yeah, completely. They're all getting drunk and falling over every which way, which makes me feel that he ought to have known his his drinking. Also, Chaucer's father was a wine merchant, so he uh, would have had some kind of in on that. I, I'm as you were describing the wine from the wedding at Cana. The question arose in my mind as to whether Robert Mondavi would give that 100 points uh, or if he would rate it a 99 and still hold off. That it has to be 100 points. You know, theologically certain that's a 100-point wine. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So you listed some books a couple moments ago. Can you just quickly review which books, if, if someone wanted to go pick out some historical accounts or books that, that kind of orbit your work on drunkenness, are there, are there any good ones for them to look for? I mean, a lot of the way you do the research is, 
or one way in is to look at sort of historical accounts of drinking. So, for example, the the best look we have at what a Viking symbol was like, which is a big drinking session in Mead Hall, comes from the poem Beowulf, which um, uh, describes it in, in, in some detail. Now, it probably wasn't always like Beowulf. Beowulf is describing the best and finest, uh, most heroic version of, of the symbol. But so, I mean, if you if you read Beowulf, you'll get a, a strong notion of how things went down with the that the the chief being served first, and then uh, everyone down in order. That the serving is done by the, the entirely by the the wives and the women folk who are in Viking culture. I'm afraid were just there to serve men a beer to the men folk and mead and stuff. And also, it it gives you an insight in how things went down. There's a bit in uh there's a bit in Beowulf when he, uh, spoiler alert, he um, dies <laughs> at the end, and they they have they lament him and how what a wonderful warrior he was and how absolutely great and what a great guy and in this great sort of funeral uh, orational lament, they they say of him he was such a wonderful guy and the most amazing thing about him this one off was he never killed any of his friends when he was drunk. Oh, that's sweet. And you go wow. That's a one-off thing. <laughs> that tells you almost everything you know, need to know about Viking drinking. Yeah, yeah, a real sweet. But to get through, yeah, to get through your whole life without killing your mates drunk <laughs> is, yeah, was, was a thing. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we'll um, something you'd be remembered for for sure. And and so he was. I will in the show notes. We're going to list some of those uh, some of those books that you listed earlier. And I just wanted to, before we give folks your digital contact info, I wanted to know if you have any advice for someone who is just starting to learn about or experiment with drinking or cocktails or, or what have you. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have taken anybody's advice when I was just learning or thinking about them. Um, best piece of advice, only drink what you're comfortable with. I used to know this. Years ago, when I was 18, I just arrived at university, I knew this girl who drank a lot, and she, she had an incredibly strong head for alcohol. And I would see people who didn't know her. She drank at about a pint every 20 minutes. And men who didn't know her, who were trying to impress her, would always try and drink to keep up. And they would see she had finished her, her drink, so they would uh, down theirs. And that's when you get unpleasantly drunk. Mm. As long as you're just drinking comfortably at your own rate and not hurrying for anyone, not speeding up, not slowing down, not playing drinking games, then you will, in my experience, get happily, comfortably, and very pleasurably drunk. Right. Try try to embody the, the block of ice, just cool and enjoyable and just sitting there doing its own thing and uh, nice yeah. and nice and you'll remain as clear-headed as possible. <laughs> Well, it's not about necessarily being clear-headed. It's a question of not feeling a bit ill. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you still want to Ultimately, I mean. yes. So, Mark, how can people connect with you on the internet, whether that's a website or social media or by email? There's my blog, which is Inky Fool. There's Twitter, which is at Inky Fool. And then there's um, uh, Facebook uh, Inky Fool page. And they're all wonderful ways of getting in touch. Not that I'm, I'm afraid I'm not a massive internet person i'm I'm too busy drinking right usually. right well that's beautiful we will list all of those on the website as well as a selection of your previous publications which people can also check out so mark i just wanted to say thank you and i am really grateful that you took the time to kind of take this little historical trip down our alcoholic past 
Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been great. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and spam assistance by Spamantha Reed. A great many spammy facts about how people consumed spam, spam, and spam throughout the ages, courtesy of Mark Forsyth, and a little bit of spam magic by yours truly. This has been a modern spam cart production, copy spam 2000 and spam. 